Great. Um, let's um, unmute John, if we can. Um, are you able to unmute yourself? I don't know how these things work. And um, I'm just going to ask him a few questions so that we can kind of get to know him a little bit better um, and, and find out kind of what's going on in his life. So hello, John. Hello, Scott. <laughs> yeah, right. Hello, everyone. <laughs> So, um, do you want to just tell us a bit about how you came to know Jesus, first of all? That's all right? Yeah, I'd love to. So, um, I grew up in a, a Christian family. We, we went to church when I was younger. We moved around the country. My dad was a bank manager. We used to move as he got different jobs in different places. So, I went to quite a variety of churches. Um, but it was, a, I, I believed there was a God. I believed in the truth of Christianity. I didn't particularly think I was a sinner that was basically the issue I saw no need for a savior to forgive me I felt I was generally moral and good and when I wasn't I was very good at covering it up um, and I was quite nasty quite judgmental a bit like if you know the story of the father and the two sons that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 I kind of made the older brother look nice <laughs> um, and, um, and then I went to university um, to study history and politics, I wanted to be a history teacher. And it was in my third year, I went to church and the, the minister of the church was preaching on the cross. Um, I can't remember which gospel, but I think it was one of the gospel accounts of, of Christ's death on the cross. And as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit convicted me that I was a sinner um, and that I needed to be forgiven. It was, it was almost like, a, I don't quite know if it's an internal voice, but just a realization that if this is true, it has to change everything about my life. And I believed it was true. I just didn't realize the impact. And I, I basically said, yes, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need Christ to be my savior. I need him to be my Lord. I need him to be the one who rules my life and whom I seek to follow and trust and obey. Um, so it was that, it was that shift. And there'd been a sort of a lifetime of the Lord calling me and showing himself to me. But that, that night was, was when we made that shift. Mm, great thanks and um and so from there various things have happened you are now in north norfolk uh, you lead a church plant there and um, you got a wife and uh, three daughters and um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about kind of your family about how you came to be in north norfolk um and how we can be praying for you that's all right yeah thank you very much i'd love to so um i know scott from when we were both in manchester i'm at a church up in manchester and I, I sort of ended up accidentally as part of the team that planted that church um, up in Manchester. I'd never really ever seen myself. I'd, ne I'd never heard of church planting. Um, after university, I, I went and worked for a church for a couple of years as a ministry trainee and intern. Then I went to theological college. I was assistant pastor of a church in Bolton for three years and then ended up moving to Manchester to be part of that, that church plant. While I was in Bolton, I got married to Flick. Um, and her family, I knew her from when I was an intern, her family lived in Buckinghamshire, but her mum and dad retired and moved, well, her dad retired, but they moved to um, Norfolk. Uh, my wife, Flick, she's got five sisters. They'd all, they all have ended up in Norfolk. They're not from there, but it's a lovely place. And we used to spend a lot of our holidays going down and staying with them. Um, and we loved the place, we loved the people. Uh, but we saw a real lack of gospel churches that were sharing the good news of Jesus with the people in the villages um, of North Norfolk. Norwich, the city, has some really good churches, but out of the villages there are some fantastic churches, but very few. Um, we began to pray for that part of the world, and increasingly the Lord convicted us that we should consider going down. So um, we talked to the church in Manchester, they felt that we could we could be released, that the church was established. Um, my co-pastor was planning on staying. We were able to find someone else. That was a wonderful answer to prayer. Um, and, and I talked to local pastors in Norfolk and they, they all said, yes, you're right. There is a need. You've not missed something. Please come. Uh, and I was talking to one guy, Tom Chapman, who was pastor of Surrey Chapel in Norwich. He's with the Lord now, actually. Um, but, but he said, we've got a fellowship group that's been praying they, they people who live out in a village called Coltishall they've been praying for a church there for years um we've got we've got no money and we've got no one to lead it but if you want to come and lead it we will encourage those folk to join you and that had been our prayer because we just didn't know where to start when we were at a distance with a, a kind of core team 
Um, and we thought maybe these people come from Manchester, maybe they won't. But having this this group and this church that had been praying um, for this was was wonderful. So we moved down 11 years ago now uh, and to lead that team in planting what is now Broad Grace Church. Um, I think I'm probably just one of the elders of a small church now rather than a church planter. I'm not sure how long you can hold on to that that label, but um, we, we love it here. The Lord has been very gracious. We've seen some folks saved. We've seen people grow in Christ. And it's it feels like it's slow work in the villages. Um, it takes a while to get to know people. People of you know third, fourth generation. And a lot of the mums at the school gate, they went to our village school. So, you know, they have all those friendships, they have the bullying and the rivalries as well. But but it's, it just feels like it takes a while. And in terms of prayer, I think that there's there's two things I want to hang on to and pray into from the last year for us in the church. One is it has been delightful seeing the way my brothers and sisters at Broad Grace have loved each other um, this last year, just how the Spirit has moved the whole church family to work as a body, to care for each other. Um, And when lots of the ways we supported that through structures and ministries were taken away, it made no difference. And I just want to hang on to that and keep that that centre in the church family. The second thing is we've had great opportunities sharing the gospel with our neighbours. And, and I think there is a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Um, and I think there, there are people who are ready to hear that there is a saviour who comes to bring life and light and hope and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. I think it is a beautiful gospel that maybe some of our neighbours are more ready to hear than they have been before. And we've been here a while now, long enough to earn some trust. I would just love it if the Lord would open up those conversations for us as a church family, to just be able to to invite people to Jesus um, after this horrendous year. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, John. Um, Lisa's going to pray about that in a minute. But um, just before that, um, one other question. So I know you've written a few books um, and one of your books, I know quite a number of people in Grace Church have been particularly helped by um, Serving Without Thinking. So I just thought it'd be good to hear a bit about that. Can you tell us kind of what the book's about and why you wrote it? And I guess why you think it's an important thing for Christians to be thinking about? Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. I'd love to. I think it's still an important book. I wrote it, I think, seven or eight years ago now. It's amazing. Um, so it came out of an experience that I had that I found mapped onto a lot of my friends and a lot of the church family. Um, so when I was an intern down in Chesham, uh, in Buckinghamshire, my first weekend on the job, I was fresh from university, um, and the church had a harvest supper. We had a nice meal together in the church hall, and then afterwards people did their party piece. Um, so there were sketches and songs and things. And at the end of it, some of the young guys in the church were putting the staging all back up in the loft. So I went and did that with them and put it all up, and then we went into the kitchen and we did the washing up. Um, and it was a really, really fun time. And I was walking home, uh, just leaving the church hall to walk across the park back to my flat. And the pastor took me on one side and said, John, I just wanted to um, commend you for the way you behaved tonight. He said, yeah, it's your first weekend and you were putting the staging away. You'd been washing up. He said, it was a great example to the other young guys in the church. Just wanted to encourage you. Um, and I went home thinking, this is fantastic. I've just done what I wanted. And my boss is pleased with me. Um, this is going to be a great job. Um, and, and it was just a joy. Uh, a few years later, I was walking home again. Uh, it was a Sunday morning. I was in Bolton as the assistant pastor. We had two church services in the morning, but none in the evening. So I was walking home after the second service. And I was glad because the rest of the day was mine, because I'd done my bit for Jesus. And now I was free. And, and the, the book, Serving Without Sinking, came out of what had happened in my heart between those two occasions. What had turned serving Christ from a free joy to weary drudgery. Um, and, and as I talk to people, I found this is very common. I know a couple who, who moved house because they couldn't think of another way of getting off the rotor at their church. They moved across the country 
because they were so weary and couldn't think of a polite way of extricating themselves apart from relocating. Um, and that's really sad, but it's not, it's not unbelievable, is it? Um, and so I, I just began to look into this and what changed it for me was a verse, um, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I realised that Christ had come to serve me. That I'm not primarily a servant of Christ. I am served by Christ. That's who I am. And I began to rebuild my understanding of Christian service as being a friend of, of the King and part of the bride of Christ and a child of a heavenly father. And children serve differently to employees. Children serve differently to slaves. Um, they serve because they know their father's love and they're secure in it and it's a delight to serve. Um, slaves serve because they're worried they might get in trouble. Employees serve because they're desperate for a raise or reputation or whatever. And it was that, that shift that I found has been hugely helpful um, and that, that in God's grace has helped others too. Thanks so much, John. Um, yeah, I found the book really helpful personally. So let, I just want to encourage you, if you've not read it, to get hold of a copy. And maybe you could find someone in Grace Church to read it with and you could chat about it as you go through. And um, I think you'd be really blessed by doing so. So I'll encourage you to do that. Thanks, John. We'll um, come back in, in a few minutes and, and hear you speak from John 21. But before that, Lisa, are you all right to um, pray for John now? Yeah. Uh, shall we pray? God, I thank you that you uh, have provided this opportunity for John to be able to come and speak to us tonight. Uh, we thank you that uh, when he talks to us later from your word, it, it's actually going to be you speaking to us. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts ready to hear that. Um, I thank you for John's testimony of all that you've done in his life. I thank you for the way that you um, saved him. And I'm, I'm sure there were people faithfully praying in the background there, like, you weren't um, not doing anything for all of those years, um, but you were at work. And I thank you, Lord, that he was able to uh, recognize his, his need for you. And I thank you for the way that uh, you've called him um, and the way that he is, is obediently serving you. Um, I thank you, too, for just that brilliant story of... Um, those people in Norfolk praying that you would uh, send somebody, that you would uh, uh, enable a church to be planted there. And at the same time, you were um, putting that on um, John and his family's hearts uh, to, to think that, that that was something that was necessary. And, and again, just a brilliant example of where you're at work and we're just getting on board with what you're doing. Um, Please help us to be attentive to what it is that you're doing and, um, and to be able to see how we get to be a partner with you in, in your work. Um, we want to thank you especially for um, the opportunities that the church has had uh, during this last year, during the whole coronavirus situation, for um, the way that they've been able to really be church and that when all of those structures have been stripped away the church has still been the church and has still been able to uh, love and care for one another i pray that you would just really encourage the church with that and that they would continue to see growth in relationships and um being able to point one another to you uh, and as all those extra things are stripped away lord i, I just pray that people will be able to see you more clearly um, we thank you too for the opportunities to share the gospel with their neighbours and um, we thank you that uh, it has meant that some people are, are more open and more ready to hear, uh, as John described, the, the beautiful gospel, the, the amazing good news about who you are, and what you've done and uh, your offer of, of grace to them. And so we ask, Lord, that you would open up conversations that... Um, your people would be ready to, to share all that you've done in their lives to be able to communicate clearly and really graciously and, and winsomely with their neighbours um, so that they might be able to come to know you um, too. And we, we continue to pray um, 
for John that you would uh, refresh him in his work. Thank you for just the way that you have worked in him throughout his ministry, um, allowing him to be able to um, recognize you, the Savior that serves, and I pray that you would continue to refresh him um, and bless him in that role and that the church would continue to grow and flourish. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lisa. Right. Um, I'm going to read from John 21 now. And um, so if you've got a Bible or a phone or whatever, if you want to um, find that and follow along with me, you'll find that um, helpful. So John 21, I'll just give you a minute to find that now. Great. So it's John chapter 21. I'll read from verse one. After, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who, whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple, that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Great, I'll um, hand over to John, he's going to speak to us from that passage now. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, do keep that open, we'll be referring back to that passage, so if you've got to open your Bible, you might like to just, just stay there. Um, let's pray as we come to look at this together. Our Father, earlier on, um, Scott said that we, we want to see your son. And we pray that you would do that now. Lord, we would see Jesus. We ask that you would fix our eyes on him, on his kindness and his forgiveness and his mercy. Send your spirit and work among us now, we pray. Amen. 
I've called this talk the extent of Christ's forgiveness. Uh, that's what we're thinking about. How far does Christ's forgiveness go? And this is a, a relevant issue. It might be that you're, you're not a Christian and you are wondering what it is about Jesus that makes people follow him. And this is a good chunk of the answer to that. It might be that you are a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years. Um, for me, it's now quite a lot more than half my life. And, and yet you still wonder, can Jesus really forgive everything? Now, a lot of us in abstract, you go, yes. But then you, you think about that that sin, the way you treated that person, and, and maybe you see that the ripples of what you did still in your life or in their life, can Christ really forgive that? Or, or that ongoing sin that you every day resolve against and every day go to bed bitterly disappointed in yourself can, can jesus really keep forgiving the same thing that you know is wrong and that you know is foolish and, and do we need to do we need to add some guilt to his forgiveness you know i i've I've been forgiven, but I need to feel bad about it for a bit. I need to kind of um, be downcast and, 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 you know, Jesus might have forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself yet. You know, that kind of, I need to carry a burden um, because his forgiveness is, is only for the people that, that look miserable, the people that wear a weight, a shackle, and maybe maybe we should think well i am forgiven but i need to lower my expectations jesus can't use someone like me i'm i'm damaged goods i have done things that if maybe maybe there's things you've done that you would hate the rest of your church family to know about you you just don't believe they're really forgivable and no one would want to talk to you. No one would want to know. Are we just damaged goods? Have we so polluted and dirtied and broken ourselves that if there is forgiveness, it is by the skin of our teeth? Well, Peter was. At the start of this story, Peter was a broken man. The disciples all were. They had followed Christ for three years across Galilee to Jerusalem. They had put their faith in him as the Messiah. They had seen him work miracles. They'd been there, they'd seen five loaves and two fish broken. And they'd handed them out to over 5,000 families. And they'd collected a basket each, 12 baskets of leftovers. They'd been there when Jesus called Lazarus out of death and back to life. They'd been there when demons fled panicking into a herd of pigs. They'd seen it all. They'd heard the teaching. They'd sat on the mount as Jesus taught the sermon. They'd been in the temple as he threw out the money changers. They knew who he was. They had seen his power. And yet when Jesus was arrested, they ran. They couldn't stay awake to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and they left him to it. None of them had the faith to stand by him. And of all of them, Peter should have. Peter was the closest. Peter was the boldest. Peter was the one who had said to Jesus, Lord, 
even if I have to die with you, I will never abandon you. And yet the night when Jesus was arrested to be crucified the next day, he had denied three times that he even knew him. He was a traitor. And he knew it. And he'd, he'd been thrilled that the faith that he had had was right. That after dying, Christ had risen. That Christ's death was not an accident, was not the end of the story, was not the great defeat, but that as he died, he carried in himself the sins of his people. Jesus died in darkness as God judged him instead of judging us for all the wrong that we do, all our selfishness, all our meanness, all the times when I, I talk to my daughters in, in a way that I know will wind them up because I'm in a bad mood and I want someone to tell off. And so I make them naughty and then I tell them off. It's horrible. I'm forgiven because Christ took that from me to get into his own body and it died with him cost him his life, cost him his blood. He hung naked, ashamed, guilty before God in darkness. We should have been there and we weren't. And we won't be because we are forgiven. And God showed the extent of that victory that Christ won over death and darkness and sin as he broke the power of death on Easter Sunday morning and brought his son out of the grave. Death is destroyed, darkness is broken, the light has come in and it will never go out. And so maybe Peter knew that there was a sense he was forgiven. I'm sure he realised that that Jesus would forgive him, that, that his, his future was secure. But he also knew that he had blown it. There's no way that Jesus would want him to lead the church anymore. Peter was the one, the rock, on whose good confession of Christ, Jesus was going to build his church. He was the leader of this missionary band who were going to take the gospel to all nations for all time. But in verse one, Jesus appeared again by the Sea of Galilee. It happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. I'm not going to be an apostle. I'm going to go back to being a fisherman. That's what I do. It's what he'd done three years earlier and he's going back to it because Jesus will wash his hands of him. Jesus is going to find someone else to lead the church. So Peter thinks. Because he knows that forgiveness doesn't go that far. And, and so do the others. And actually, it's, it's quite funny. They said, we'll go with you. Now, you know, sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, they're fishermen. Nathaniel is studying to be a pastor. He's a rabbinical student. He's going to be a rabbi. He's at seminary. He's not done a day's work in his life. You know, and, and here he is thinking, oh, I've blown it. No synagogue's going to give me a job now, now that I've thrown my lot in with Jesus. So I better learn how to fish. <laughs> He's basically saying, Peter, will you give me a job? You know, if I, if I pull an oar hard enough, which end, which end do I hold, Peter? Is it the flat end or the round end? I'm not quite sure. He's... Yeah, there's a desperation here. And it's almost comic. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Can you imagine, Peter? I can't even fish. I can't, I can't, even, I can't even fish anymore. I've forgotten how. Well, what am I going to do? But Jesus hasn't finished with him. See, this is the amazing thing that Christ's forgiveness goes further than we expect that it would. Verse four. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. 
When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. This is the second time Jesus has done that miracle. Luke records it in chapter five of his gospel. It's Luke chapter five, verses four through to 11, if you want to look it up later. But it's the miracle Jesus used to call the disciples the very first time. It's the miracle he used to recruit them into his band. They've been out fishing, they've caught nothing. He told them to cast the net on the other side. They hauled in a huge catch of fish. That time it was so large they couldn't get into the boat. They had to signal to their friends in the other boat to come alongside to help them. And when they landed the catch, Jesus said, now come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You will fish for people now. And they did. The miracle and, and, and the way Jesus spoke to them galvanized them and they joined him and they threw in their lot with Jesus. It was the way Jesus said, you're going to be my disciples. And by repeating the miracle, he's saying, it's not changed. I want you now the same way I wanted you then. I want you to be my missionaries. I want you to take the good news of forgiveness to the nations, not not as I used to think about myself, not as people who don't need it, but as people who realise that the only hope we have is that Jesus forgives us, that Jesus loves us, that when he saw us in our sin, he didn't pull a face like you might pull when you smell the milk and it's off. When he saw us in our sin, he threw himself off his throne and down out of heaven and came to rescue us at the cost of his own life. And, and the disciples are seeing just how much he loves them as he repeats this miracle. The disciple whom Jesus loved, verse seven, that's the way John talks about himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. He realizes what's going on. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round it, he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. It's, it's almost as if he doesn't quite know what to do. It's Jesus and he's delighted and humiliated at the same time. And I wonder if he just doesn't know what to do and he, and he kind of jumps in. And and the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 metres. And the question is, is this miracle for all of them? Is this reinstatement for all of them? Or is it for most of them? And what's, what must be going through, through Peter's mind? is that this is for the others, but not for him. Because he really blew it in a way that none of the others did. He denied Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. He should have been the best and he was the worst. And, and then he sees, verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And, and Peter sees this fire burning with the, the fish and the bread. And it immediately draws his mind back because this is not a usual sort of fire. A fire of burning coals is mentioned twice in the Bible, in the New Testament anyway. It's a really unusual sort of fire. And the other time that Peter would have well remembered that a fire of burning coals was, was burning was in the courtyard of the high priest's house. See, back in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, John records Peter's promise. Let me read you John chapter 13, verses 37 and 38. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And then look at um, chapter 18, verse 15. Here Jesus has been arrested and he's been taken for trial at the house of the high priest. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside of the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Aren't you one of this man's disciples too? she asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now, it's lost in this translation, but it's a fire of coals. A coal fire. It's the same word. This is the only other time it's used. And then verse 35, uh, sorry, 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Peter three times denied that he even knew Jesus while he warmed his hands on a charcoal fire. Jesus set a charcoal fire to cook the bread and the fish for breakfast. And I think that's why when Jesus says to them, verse 10, bring some of the fish you have just caught, it's Simon Peter, verse 11, who climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. You see, Peter has understood that Jesus is including him in his forgiveness, in his reinstating of the apostles as the mission team who will take the gospel to the world. He realizes that Jesus has lit a charcoal fire as a sign to him that, that Jesus wants him as well to be part of that gang, part of that, that band of disciples. But he's still Simon Peter. Do you notice he's, he's called Simon Peter throughout this passage? He has two names. Simon is the name he was given. Peter is the name Jesus gave him when he said that he would be the, the head of the church under Christ, the, the leader of the missionary team. And, and I think John is, is using both names because it's ambiguous which he will be. Who, who will lead? Who's going to be in charge? And, and clearly Peter thinks he knows the answer. Because even after Jesus reinstates him, and we'll cover that in a minute, but in verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? It's like, it's like he's saying, well, is it, isn't John going to be the leader? I mean, John is the other one you're really close to, his brother James, and, and John's the one you spoke to at the Last Supper, and surely John now will, will take the place of leadership. Surely John is going to be the rock, the head of the apostles. But that's not Jesus' plan. Jesus takes Peter aside, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, takes him back, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think he's probably indicating that the fishing boats and the nets and the tackle and saying, look, Peter, which is it? Are you my disciple or are you a fisherman? 
which which do you love? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. He's hurt that Jesus asks him a third time. Because Jesus is asking him three times whether he loves him. Because Peter denied three times that he knew him. Jesus is bringing up between them and before them Peter's sin. Peter had denied his God. He had rejected Christ, his closest friend, his Lord, his master, his saviour. And, and he'd done it three times. And Jesus needs him to know that he is well aware he has in the front of his mind what Peter did because three times as Peter declares his love Jesus tells him to feed his sheep he, he makes him once again the shepherd among the apostles the servant leader of the mission team he is reinstating Peter to the position of leadership and he needs Peter to know that he hasn't forgotten his sin. That this forgiveness that goes so far that it undoes all the damage of Peter's sin is not something Jesus offers lightly or, or glibly. Jesus sees our sin. When he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He knows that some of the burdens we carry are wicked. Whether they are particular things we did, particular ways we treated people, whether they are sins that we are falling into again and again and again, whether this week you were almost too ashamed to come to church and you're glad it's on Zoom because you're not sure you could have faced your brothers and sisters knowing what you said, knowing what you did. Jesus knows. And he says, I forgive you. Come to me and I will take that burden, as well as the burden of your suffering, as well as the burden of your fear, as well as the burden of that situation you're facing. I will take the burden of your sin and I will take it into my heart. And it will die, it died with me outside Jerusalem, 33 AD or so. It is gone, it is finished. He wants us to know that he doesn't forgive us because we've somehow conned him that we're nice enough to deserve it. He knows we're not. We haven't persuaded him that we are, we feel bad enough that we deserve it. We can't feel bad enough. He hasn't, he hasn't forgiven us because he's persuaded that we, we've turned a new leaf. No, he's forgiven us because he shed his blood for us. And the blood of God is precious enough to wipe away our sin. And he wants us to know that he forgives us for the actual horrendous things we have done. Just like he forgave Peter. And he restored him. Isn't that incredible? There's no, I told you so. There's no, but this time Peter's on probation. There's no, well, you can be an apostle, but John's in charge. There's no, this time I think we need to make it a, a kind of group leadership, Peter. No, you are back where you were, as if nothing had happened, because I have taken your sin. And when I take your sin, I take it completely and utterly just astronomically good.
did you see that by the time Jesus had finished talking to him, he was Peter. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Jesus wounds Peter's heart to bind him up. He asked him the questions of Simon so that he can answer as Peter, so that he can declare three times that he loves Jesus and hear three times that he must feed the sheep of Christ. And then Jesus does a very strange thing. As if the rest has been not that strange. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now, Peter is fragile. He's an emotional mess at this point, isn't he? And Jesus, just before he reinstates him, he builds him back up, he forgives him. And just before he says, follow me, and kind of caps it all off with, with repeating again that great command, which he gave Peter back at the beginning, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's giving Peter that, that, that chance to, to step back into all that Christ gave him, all that Christ made for him, all that Christ made of him. But before he does, he says, by the way, Peter, they will crucify you. He told him the kind of death by which he would glorify God. They will stretch out your hands. They did. Peter was crucified, probably on the same day as his wife. Why does Jesus do that? It's because he hasn't yet finished forgiving Peter. His forgiveness will go further than reinstating Peter as the leader of the apostles, the head of the church, the, the one who will take the mission of God to the nations. You see, Peter had made Jesus a promise. He said, Lord, even if I should have to die for you, I will never leave you. And he had broken his word. He had failed. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you wanted to be the friend who loved me enough to die for me. I will give you the desires of your heart. I will trust you again in a situation where your choice will be to save your own skin or to confess that you are mine. And next time, Peter, you will have the courage you wanted to have in the high priest's courtyard. You see, if Peter had died in his bed as an old man, he would always have wondered, could I, could I have died for Christ? Jesus wants Peter to enter the glory of his presence, knowing that he loved his saviour enough to die for him. That was the desire of Peter's heart. And Jesus loved him enough to give it to him. It's absolutely extraordinary. You know, I, I don't know. We're not told by history. It's outside the Bible. We're not told. But my guess is that when they brought Jesus, um, Peter, before the judge, there was a charcoal fire burning in the courtroom. And my guess is that the judge said to him, Peter, come on, you're an old man now. Why not simply pray to the emperor? No, I will follow Jesus. He is my God. Come on, Peter, be reasonable. A man can have two gods. 
you pray to your God and just pray to the emperor as well. No, Jesus is my Lord. I will follow him alone. Okay, Peter, this is the last time. If we turn our backs, no one will know if you prayed to the emperor. We can just assume you did and you walk out of this courtroom alive. Please, I've given you three chances. This is the last one. No, I am Christ's and I will not deny him. And as they led him out to crucify him, Peter must have been rejoicing that the Lord had worked in his heart all that he had desired those many years before in that upper room in Jerusalem. That Christ had trusted him again and that this time he hadn't let his Lord down. Can you imagine the reunion later that day when Peter opened his eyes and saw Jesus beaming face. The forgiveness of God is total. It is based not on our desert, not on our feeling bad enough, not on our making amends. It is based entirely on the love of God for us. It is bought entirely by the blood of God shed for us. And it is applied into our lives by a saviour who says, I know what you did. I know what you are doing. And I died to free you from it and to draw you out of it and to forgive you to the uttermost and to make you the woman or the man that you long to be. And I'm not finished yet. And one day forgiven, you will step into glory and I will be there to smile and to embrace you. And you will be home. Let's pray. Gracious Father. Oh, I wish I could speak in a worthy way of the forgiveness of your son. May your spirit do what we cannot. May he open our eyes to the sheer cosmic beauty of Christ's love for us, of his forgiveness of us, of his welcome and his redemption and his life that he shares so freely with us. He is a mighty saviour, mighty enough for sinners like us. Father, we give you thanks and praise and we ask you that we would never doubt the extent of his forgiveness or of his love. Amen.